My name is Bob, and today's reading is from the book of Matthew, chapter 28, verses 1 to 15. On Friday we read about Jesus' crucifixion. He died for us. Today we read, Hallelujah, he has risen indeed. After the Sabbath at dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, going to the tomb. He rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning. His clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him, they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples. He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and advised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say, His disciples come during the night and stole him away while you were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Amen. Thank you, Bob. Let me pray as we get into this passage. Uh, dear Lord, as we reflect on your word now, I pray that I might speak faithfully to it and we might be confident of our salvation because of what you achieved on this third day. Amen. There is no shortage of conspiracy theories in the world, and a disproportionate number seem to be associated with America, so I'm not sure what that says, but... Uh, here are three that jump to mind for me. Uh, the, the first is the government hiding aliens at Area 51. Uh, that's always been a big one for the US. They did raid Area 51 a couple of years ago. I'm not sure what they found, um, but it would be kind of exciting. 
Uh, probably number two, uh, who was behind the assassination of JFK? And then number three, uh, and this one sort of gained popularity over the years, I think. Uh, did the US really land on the moon? But I think arguably the biggest conspiracy theory of all, of all time in modern history, is the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, here is an event that changed the course of world history. But right from the start, uh, there were plenty of people who were trying to cover it up as a conspiracy. And so today the big question for our passage is, who is conspiring against who? Uh, did the disciples conspire to convince people that Jesus really had risen from the dead and that he was the fulfilment of all the Old Testament promises? Or did the religious establishment conspire to cover up the resurrection? Because a risen Jesus was even worse than a martyred Jesus. And in trying to find out the truth, we need to consider, well, who benefits the most from this cover-up? So, to provide some context for Easter Sunday, we need to go back briefly to Friday. Because after Jesus was crucified, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a member of the ruling council, uh, went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Uh, which was more courageous, perhaps, than we appreciate. Because his peers had just conspired to have Jesus killed and crucified, and now he is asking for the body of Jesus so that he might have an honourable burial. And all of this is happening right just before the Sabbath, uh, which means uh, the Sabbath begins on Friday evening at sunset, and once the Sabbath begins, no one can work, and that includes preparing a body for burial. And so they do some, some basic burial things. They wrap his body in a linen cloth and they lay the body in a tomb. And it's hard to imagine, isn't it, the emptiness of that Saturday. Now, for the disciples, they had thought that Jesus was going to change the world. You know, a week earlier, he had come into Jerusalem praised as a king. Uh, two days ago, uh, they had sat with Jesus and shared a meal together. And now he is gone. You know, from the religious establishment perspective, you know, he came to Jerusalem as the ultimate disruptor. You know, his message was all about fulfilling the Old Testament, but in a way that was very different to what they expected. He loved sinners, but he rebuked the religious. And despite all the miraculous things that he did, the religious leaders saw him as a threat. And so they decided that they needed to protect the people, uh, they needed to protect the honour of God, and so he needed to be silenced. And that's exactly what they have done. Uh, they got the Romans on board, they got Herod on board, they got the crowd on board, and now Jesus is dead. But even in death, Jesus is a threat. And so they go to Pilate to metaphorically put the final nail in the coffin. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he's been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. 
So a guard is placed in front of the tomb, and now everyone waits. And so the Sabbath ends with three scattered stars in the sky on Saturday evening. And then on Sunday morning, before the dawn, uh, these women who had followed Jesus, who were disciples of Jesus, come to the tomb. And we know from Luke's account, they were coming to prepare the body for a proper burial. They were expecting to find the body of Jesus. But then events take a completely unexpected turn. So it started with an earthquake, and this earthquake is actually the second earthquake in these three days, which isn't totally out of place for Jerusalem, because Jerusalem does have earthquakes. Um, But what is significant here is the timing. The first was at the moment of Jesus' death, and the second is now, as an angel arrives to proclaim his resurrection. And the guards who have been sent to guard this body and make sure nothing happens are so overwhelmed with fear to the point that they look like dead men. Now I reckon in these events we go one of two directions. Either we go, I can't believe in stuff like angels and you know, uh, earthquakes and darkness coming over the land, and therefore all of this stuff is just the stuff of myth and legend. Or uh, we go the other way. Uh, if God created the natural order of things, uh, then God is clearly powerful enough to work outside that natural order if he so decides. And it's particularly possible in a moment like this, because this is one of the historical moments of history. This is the moment that all of the Bible has been working towards. This is the moment that God is going to deal with the two big problems for humanity. Uh, the problem of sin and the problem of death. And God testifies to this unprecedented event with these extraordinary displays of power, including this angel. And this angel says to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who is crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Now, the disciples have been told that Jesus was, would be risen. Uh, even the religious leaders had heard that Jesus was claiming to rise again from the dead. And now it's all happening. And now these, this angel commands these women, go quickly and tell his disciples he's risen from the dead and he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. And again, when the disciples hear this news, this is not new to them. Uh, Jesus uh, said it a few days earlier, but after I've risen, I'll go ahead of you into Galilee. So it was all there to be seen. But in the moment when it's actually happening, they just cannot believe it's true. Uh, Perhaps they thought it was more of a a spiritual uh, resurrection than a physical one. Uh, But now it is literally happening. And then this already inconceivably wonderful moment gets even better. Suddenly Jesus meets them. Greetings, he says. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. You know, again, it's hard to imagine the journey for these women. You know, they've come this morning, <coughs> grieving the loss of what they thought was their Lord and Saviour. Uh, then the fear of the moment as his angel stands before them. Uh, then you know this moment of wonder as as they, this angel proclaims that Jesus is risen. And then uh, they're confronted with Jesus in the flesh. And it's one thing to hear that he's alive, 
but it must have been something completely else to actually see him alive. And they fall at his feet and worship him. You know, the obvious accusation in all of this is that the women are making it up, which would play easily into the culture of the day because women weren't considered to be reliable witnesses. Uh, Or perhaps Matthew, the disciple, is making it up when he wrote down this account. But if you want to make this stuff up and be believed, uh, then this account is not it. Uh, Which begs the question, you know, in all of our, as we're talking about conspiracies, if you're going to have a conspiracy, you at least want to make sure that your witnesses are credible. And yet, Matthew chooses these completely unacceptable witnesses as his first witnesses to the resurrection. So for someone who's hearing these events, you know, way back when, uh, it would have been easy for them to dismiss this testimony of these women. And a far more credible story uh, was already around at the time. So when the religious leaders had heard uh, what had happened at this tomb, they must have been beyond despair. You know, this is the very thing that they feared the most. And now it's all coming to pass. And so they start a rumour. You are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. It might not have been the most credible rumour, it certainly doesn't make the guards look real good. Uh, but if it came down to believing religious leaders or believing a few random women from Galilee, it would certainly be enough. And it was. Uh, so Matthew goes on to reflect, this story has been widely circulated amongst the Jews to this very day. Out of the four biblical accounts of Jesus dying and rising again from the dead, so the four, four Gospels, And Matthew is the only one uh, to include this part of the event. He's the only one to include the story of the soldiers. And we think he's done that because he's writing primarily to a Jewish audience. And because of this rumour, he wants to address this rumour and make things clear to the people. Everything about Jesus is a complete reversal of how we expect things to be done. You know, he came from Galilee, which is about as nowhere as it gets. Uh, he's born into a manger, uh, which is about as lowly as it gets. His crown is a crown of thorns, and he dies unceremoniously outside of Jerusalem on a barren, barren dusty outcrop of rock. You know, this is hardly the sort of stuff that is going to change the world. And yet, this is the path Uh, that God has chosen to save humanity. So on Friday, the focus was on Jesus dying on the cross as our substitute. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And death is the ransom that he is willing to pay to save us from our sins. Yeah, when the Bible talks about sin, we often think about it in terms of our behaviour, And we think the solution is to simply do more good than bad. Let's just keep the scales on the good side of things. And then we sort of try to tip the scales in our favour. So if we do anything vaguely good, we kind of give ourselves double points. And then we sort of try to justify why some of our bad behaviour is actually good behaviour. So I'm no longer selfish, I'm just being true to myself. And then we sort of try to diminish those things that we feel we've done genuinely wrong or justify why it wasn't really our fault. 
And so in all of this sort of creative accounting, we're trying to keep the scales in our favour, but actually we've missed the point. Uh, it's not really about how bad we are uh, or how good we are. Uh, the real issue is how we relate with the God who created us and recognising and starting by recognising that that relationship is fundamentally broken. And so all of our bad behaviour is really just a symptom of a bigger problem. And thankfully, God provides a solution in his son. He paid a price that we could not pay uh, to secure a life that we do not deserve. And his resurrection is the confirmation that it's actually worked, uh, that Jesus really is qualified to be our substitute and really has dealt with the consequences of our sin. And if we accept that substitution, then death no longer has power over us. And so we have a choice about what we believe. We can believe uh, the conspiracy is with the disciples. They really did steal the body in one, one last desperate attempt uh, to be relevant in a city which has already moved on. Uh, but it's hard to see the benefit for the disciples. Uh, they get to cling to a movement that is clearly a lie, and they risk their lives for what? Uh, in the words of Paul, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. So it doesn't solve the problem of sin. And at this point, the disciples have no real power, no real influence that they're trying to preserve or protect. And in fact, they face the real possibility of being tried and killed as revolutionary. So it's hardly a compelling motivation for a conspiracy. But it is a convenient accusation for us. Because if the disciples did conspire to present Jesus as raised from the dead, then that discredits the disciples and that discredits Jesus. And in our Christian heritage context, that means no risen Jesus, means no truth in the Bible, so we don't have to listen to the Bible, which means no God, which very conveniently means no accountability for me. And that leaves me free to choose my own path. And which sounds incredibly attractive until you reach the point of realising that choosing your own path only works if you have some idea where you're going. So that's one option. And certainly that's the easiest option, which is to blame the disciples. And certainly that's what the religious leaders would like us to do. Uh, but as Christians, uh, we've chosen the less popular option. Continuing the words of Paul from that last passage, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And if there is any conspiracy in the events of the resurrection, then it is with the religious leaders. Uh, they certainly had the power, they certainly had the motivation, they had lots to lose and they had plenty to gain. You know, the Apostle Matthew does care about conspiracies because they potentially get in the way of people hearing the truth and actually believing. Uh, but we shouldn't let conspiracies distract us too much from the good news. Uh, that Jesus came and died for sinful, rebellious, heart-prone to wander people like us. And if we accept that love, uh, if we are committed to submitting to his kingship, then we can be confident of where we stand with God. And that has all sorts of implications for the present. It has implications for our future. 
And becoming a Christian is a bit like becoming a citizen in a new country. There's our responsibilities in becoming a citizen, but there are also privileges. And even responsibilities are pretty good when we love doing what we are doing and when we love the person we're doing it for. You know, the responsibility for my children to, or to take my children to the park when they were little is hardly a burdensome responsibility. That's a joy. And certainly, as we as Christians live for Christ, there is a joy. Uh, but there's also plenty of benefit. Uh, for us, the benefit is shown in how we see the benefit and how, how God guides our life in the present, in the way that he shows us what it looks like to love him, but also to love other people, and uh, what it looks like to even love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. It shows... He shows us the beauty of grace and the freedom that comes with being forgiven, but also the freedom that comes with forgiveness. And we don't do any of this stuff particularly well by ourselves, but even then, uh, God is good and helps us with his spirit. So we're certainly not good, but we are works in progress. And the ultimate benefit, uh, Jesus has secured our salvation and he has secured our eternal future. Uh, We are all going to face judgment one day. But as followers of Christ, we have Jesus standing in our place as our substitute. And that allows us to face the future without the fear that we naturally feel, isn't it? We do fear death, but in Christ, death and fear is taken away. And that's why we can say with such joy and relief and hope today, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed.